Good morning. I want to talk to you this morning about one of the greatest privileges that we as Christians have. I want to talk to you about this privilege that we have as believers, those who've been redeemed by Christ. And it's a grand privilege in the in face of the reality that we are a people that are constantly bombarded with anxiety and worry and fear. I'm going to, in a sense, kind of piggyback from last week's message. I hope that's okay. And I want to talk to you this morning about the privilege of Christian thought. And it's a grand privilege indeed. And I believe that it's something that God has called us to approach with a certain amount of effort. But I want us to know from the outset that that effort is coupled with a grand amount of grace. We talk about things like fear and anxiety and worry. There was a time when Charles Spurgeon reflected on this season of his life when he struggled greatly and deeply with depression. This is what he had to say during that time. He said, My spirits were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. A kind friend was telling me of some poor old soul living near who was suffering very great pain, and yet she was full of joy and rejoicing. I was so distressed by the hearing of that story, and I felt so ashamed of myself. Fighting this type of depression is as difficult as fighting with mist. Yes, the prince of preachers struggled because the prince of preachers was a human being. And we can find ourselves relating to that. Maybe not specifically that degree or that depth of depression, but we can feel bombarded with emotions and anxiety, or perhaps emotions that stem from anxiety. Several years ago, the National Anxiety Center released the top ten reasons that cause people to be fearful. And in those was things like Medicare, immigration, education, fear of famine, terrorism. And I think that it's very possible that we have developed our own list of fears. I think it's, I think it's possible. I think it's probable. And we might find ourselves wondering what really is going to happen to the, to this nation? in its shaky condition. How long will mom and dad really be with us? What's going to happen? What are my children going to become? What's my retirement going to look like Look like if I even have one? And I can tell you, since I've been exposed to the, to the nursing home industry, one of those that's burning at the top of my list is Listen, how am I going to spend my last years? And the reality, all of these concerns and fears and worries, they are the result of living in an imperfect world. But I want to encourage you, even though we are living in an imperfect world, God has blessed us 
with a grand privilege. A grand privilege to confront these fears and anxieties and worries. And it's the privilege of Christian thought. I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. And let's explore this. Hamlet spoke on verses 1 through 7. I'm really going to focus on verses 8 and 9, specifically verse 8, but I want to read verses 1 through 9. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the the, uh, focus of our time together this morning, starting in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Father, as we come to You this morning, God, we we come to You with a very clear and full understanding, Father, of our sinfulness, of our flesh, of our temptation to fall prey, God, to things like worry and fear. I pray that this morning, Lord, You would help us to see the obstacle that that is. Help us to see how that hinders us, Lord. But even beyond that, help us to see that in the midst of our condition, Father, You are ever-present. You're ever-there. You're ever-watching. You're ever-loving. And You are ever-tending to Your people that are called by Your name. So, So this morning, God, we're asking for Your help. Lord, we ask for Your help in the relaying of Your Word. We ask for help in the hearing of Your Word. We ask for Your help in the conveying of that truth into hearts and into minds. So we pray for clarity. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you this morning about three things. I want to talk to you about the obstacle of Christian thought. I want to talk to you about the effort 
of Christian thought. And I want to talk to you about the freedom that is found in Christian thought. You know, as we talk about this idea of the privilege of Christian thought, I want us to look at verse 8 again. Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. The Apostle Paul is bringing this portion, this section of his instruction and his teaching to a climax as he is saying, finally, brothers, do this. Finally, think this way. Paul is saying, this is what remains to be said in order to implement everything that I have taught you thus far, this far. Because the reality is, the Philippians, perhaps just like us, were lingering around this question of how, Paul? How do we live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel? How do we obtain this mind which really is ours in Christ Jesus? How do we empty ourselves and take on the form of a bondservant? Paul, how do we count all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord? How do we, Paul, forget about what lies behind and press forward and strain toward what lies in front of us? Paul, how do we refrain from being anxious about anything, much less being anxious about everything. And verse 8 is Paul's plan of action for us as he says, listen, think. You want to know what the plan of action is? The plan of action is to think. The plan of action is to buy into this privilege, this idea of the privilege that lies behind Christian thinking. But any time that we talk about the privilege of Christian thinking, we want to talk about the obstacle to that. What is the obstacle to Christian thought? We have to talk about what it is that denies us from that privilege. And Paul makes that very, very clear in verse 6 when he says, Be anxious. Do not be anxious about anything. I think it's very important that we first understand the danger that can come through our anxiety. I think we have to see that. As a matter of fact, Jesus told a parable about a sower and some seeds in Mark chapter 4. And Jesus stated that the sower went out and he scattered seeds. And in part, he scattered those seeds among thorns. And what happens is when that seed is planted in the ground and it dies and it begins to spring up life, Jesus stated that the thorns grow up alongside it and they choke the life out of what's trying to come up from the plant. So later on, when the disciples come to Jesus and they say, listen, Jesus, what did all that mean? Jesus says to them, in relation to the seed that's scattered among the thorns, this is what Jesus says. Jesus said, these are the ones who have heard the Word, but... The worries of the world enter in and choke the Word and it becomes unfruitful. It is very characteristic of anxiety in any form, whether it's the form of worry, 
whether it's the form of fear, it is very characteristic for anxiety to choke out all spiritual life. Anxiety, it is seen, it is, it is revealed, it is an emotion, and we see it in worry. We see it in nervousness. We see it in unrest. We see it in doubt. We see it in fear. We see it in restlessness of all kinds, usually in relation to something that's lingering in front of us. Now, what does it sound like that anxiety is the opposite of? What's that? Faith. It's exactly right. It seems as if anxiety is the exact opposite of faith. Now, the thing that anxiety and faith have in common is that they're both looking forward. It's the different lenses that they're looking through that is so contrasting. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now, faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance about what we do not see. So faith looks ahead in confidence, while anxiety looks ahead in fear. And my goal this morning is this. I think that anxiety is something that can be so prevalent among us guys, that we can be so bombarded with it, that we can go through life without realizing how deep it's invading our hearts without realizing how deeply it's affecting our faith. You see, on the surface when I worry, on the surface when I'm being fearful, my thought can be, okay, I'm responding, or this is something that's going on inside of me because of an outward circumstance. In other words, this circumstance has provoked me to fear. This circumstance has provoked me to worry. And I, I want to stop right there a moment. And I want to make something very clear. We will worry. We will be fearful. To say this morning that we will not worry, maybe even to say that we should not worry, it's kind of like saying we should not be human. We will worry. But my goal this morning is not to say if you're fearful, if you're worrying, you're a very poor Christian. That's not the goal. The goal this morning is to just to try to take a glance inside the deeper issue. Because if I'm responding in fear, or if I'm responding in worry, I'm not responding based on what is going on inside of me because of an outward circumstance. I'm responding based on what's not going on inside of me because of an outward circumstance. I'm responding based on what's not defining me in the midst of that outward circumstance. And I'm speaking for myself. And usually my history is what's not defining me at that moment is faith. That's what's not defining me. <clears throat> I have found myself on several Saturday nights sleepless as I'm preparing to come to church on Sunday morning and proclaim the Word of God to the people of God. A week ago Sunday, we took my mother-in-law from Duke University to the place where I work in Anstead. Dropped her off there. My wife spent the evening with her. Came home Sunday night. We go to bed. Sunday morning we wake up and the first thing that she says is, I was up all night worrying about her. We're getting ready to have state surveyors come to the place that I work. And what they're going to do is they're going to come in 
They're going to go through all of our paperwork with a fine-tooth comb, and they're going to watch and observe all of the things that we do throughout our day, and they're going to tear us apart if that opportunity presents itself. So we're in a meeting last week, and my boss says, you know what, I slept for about an hour and a half last night just, just worrying, full of anxiety in relation to all that's going on. Can anybody here relate to any of that? Yeah. There's a restlessness in the air. There's a restlessness in the air, and I know that because I talk to such an array of people, and you know what? They're saying the same exact things. I'm just not sleeping well anymore. And I want to suggest this morning that that is not just an insomnia epidemic. It's because of a lack of peace. We as Christians, we worry and we're confronted with anxiety. We're bombarded. We're weighed down with anxiety at the same rate that non-Christians are. The same exact rate. Now, David said, and this may be a side, but David said in Psalm 4, 8, I will both lie down in peace. Now, there's a result to lying down in peace. He said, I will lie down in peace and sleep. I will lie down in peace and I will sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Job's friend got it right in Job 22.21 when Eliphaz said, Acquaint yourselves now with him and be at peace. Verse 8, Philippians 4, verse 8 is Paul's answer as to how we as believers obtain rest. It's his response to how we gain peace. It's his response as to how we get to know the Lord of peace and gain peace from the Lord. Not only by emphasizing what we are to think about, but equally, necessarily, emphasizing what we are not to think about. Now, I'm going to let D.A. Carson explain that because he'll do a much better job than me. He says this in relation to Philippians 4.8. Paul puts things in the most concrete way. When Paul says to think about true things, he is insisting that we not think about false things. To think about noble things is to not think about base things. To think about whatever is right is to not dwell on the wrong. To think about whatever is pure is to not think about the sleazy. To think about the lovely is to not think about the disgusting. To think about the admirable is to not think about the despicable. So Paul is introducing us on what not to think about. Therefore, he's establishing a boundary and says, if you think about these wrong things, you're setting the stage for anxiety in your life. But there's something else that Paul is doing in verse 8 of Philippians 4. He's introducing us to the effort of Christian thought. He's introducing us to the effort of Christian thought when he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Oswald Chambers states, to think is an effort. 
To think rightly is a great effort. And to think as a Christian ought to think is the greatest effort of a human soul. When the Apostle Paul says, think on these things, he's not simply encouraging us to entertain thoughts or ideas. Paul is not simply encouraging us to find the moral plumb lines in the Word of God and try to conform to those and say, yes, Lord, I agree. When Paul says that we are to think on these things, that word think comes from a Greek word that means a process of careful study. It means a process of careful reasoning. A process of careful calculation. A process of careful considering that always bears the results of a positive, right conclusion. It's like sitting down at the table with a math problem. Sitting down at the table with this problem and I'm reasoning it out. I'm calculating it out. I'm considering it out until I come up with a right, correct answer. But know this, I do not get up from that table until the right answer is found. Now let me give you an example of that. In Luke 14, starting in verse 25, Jesus begins a discourse regarding discipleship or the cost of discipleship. You can turn there with me if you want. I will read out of that passage. But Jesus starts this discourse by saying this in verse 25. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And we know what he means when he says hate. He's talking about his supremacy over all other relationships. So Jesus is starting this discourse on discipleship and says, Unless you do these things, you can't be my disciple. Now, even that word disciple gives us insight into the importance of Christian thought because a disciple is one who sits under the teaching of his master, not for the purpose of just trying to determine whether or not he agrees with the teaching of his master, but he sits under the teaching of his master with the sole intention of conforming to the teaching of his master so that the teaching of his master or the teaching of his instructor becomes the disciple's very own way of life. So Jesus links our conformity to discipleship to the efforts behind our thoughts. Now I want to validate that. Let's read in verse 28 of Luke 14. This is what Jesus says. For which of you, <clears throat> desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count, think, calculate, reason the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, think, calculate, reason, whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation 
and asks for terms of peace. The first thing I want you to notice that Jesus places emphasis on is the effort behind the way that this person, that we, beloved, are called to think. The person desiring to build, the king considering war, the very first thing that they do is they sit down. They sit down the way a student sits down with this math problem. And it shows the seriousness behind their intention. The, the intention is to isolate themselves from any type of distraction. So it's just the student, his thoughts, and God. To be alone with God, to be about the effort of biblical thinking. And the second thing that I want you to notice about this passage is that biblical thinking has as its only chief aim conformity to a standard. See, if we keep that Luke passage in context, to sit down, to reason, to think, to calculate, is not for the purpose of determining if the tower should be built. It's not for determining if the king should go to war. If we're going to keep that in context, that would be like the follower of Christ asking if he should hate his mother, father, wife, brother, sister, even his own life. And according to Jesus, of course he should do that. See, the reality is the one who's desiring to build, he should build. The reason that he should build is because, listen, this tower is important. This is a watchtower, and it's going to protect this town and this village and this kingdom. He should build. The king who's considering war, he should go to war. He's responsible for protecting his people and his kingdom. So the purpose for thinking and reasoning and considering and counting for the builder is not to determine if he should build, it's to conform to the need to build. The purpose of thinking and reasoning and counting and deliberating for the king is not to determine if he should go to war, it's for the purpose of conforming to the need to go to war just like the person who is a follower of Christ, he doesn't sit down and think and reason and calculate if he should put Christ in a place of supremacy over all relationships and all things. He thinks, he reasons, he calculates to conform to the need to make sure that Christ is in his place of supremacy over all other people and over all other things. That's a pretty important truth. It's a pretty frightening truth. It's a pretty convicting truth. But there's a beauty to this truth that I want you to see as we talk about the freedom of Christian thought. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is teaching about the value of the kingdom of God. And as He's doing so, He's instructing us, He's instructing His listeners that there should be such an emphasis upon that value that that's the kingdom that we live for now. And the reality is this. If we're going to live that way, there's going to be times where things like anxiety and worry and fear are going to creep up in our lives. So Jesus begins this thought pattern by saying to His listeners, do not be anxious for your life. It's the first thing He says. It's kind of the same thing that the Apostle Paul is saying to us in Philippians 4.8. Now, do you remember what Jesus said as He goes on to speak in this passage to combat that anxiety? Remember what He said? What He said was, 
in order to combat this anxiety, in order to not be anxious for your life, let me tell you what your responsibility is. Your responsibility is to think. Let's read Matthew 6, starting in verse 26. Jesus said, look at the birds of the air. The word look, it means to think, consider, reason, calculate. Look at the birds of the air. Think about the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider, think, reason, calculate. Sit down at the table and figure this math problem out. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will He not much more clothe you? O you of little what? Well, you of little faith. That's why we have to talk about the obstacle, because faith and anxiety, they're continuing to combat each other. O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Wow, think about it. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones states the following in relation to Matthew 6. He says this, Faith, according to our Lord's teaching in this paragraph, is primarily thinking. And the whole trouble with a man of little faith is that he does not he allows circumstances to bludgeon him. That is the real difficulty of life. Life comes to us with a club in its hand and strikes us upon the head and we become incapable of thought, helpless and defeated. And I think I would want to insert there, even if we're not incapable of thought, we're definitely given to wrong thoughts. He goes on and says, the way to avoid that, according to our Lord, is to think. We must spend more time in studying our Lord's lessons in observation and deduction. The Bible is full of logic, and we must never think of faith as something purely mystical. We do not sit down in an armchair and expect marvelous things to happen to us. That is not Christian faith. Christian faith is essentially thinking. Look at the birds. Think about them and draw your deductions. Look at the grass. Look at the lilies of the field and consider them. So when Paul says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, I want you to know that the Apostle Paul is giving us the freedom to expand our thoughts on all things that bear the mark and the brand of Jesus Christ. And he places us in the world and says, go find out what they are. Go find out what those pure things are. Listen, beloved, 
Any time that we find ourselves struggling with matters of life and faith, run to the Word of God as fast as you can and pull from the truth that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Do that. When you're struggling with matters of faith and life, read about men of God who've paved the way before us, men like George Mueller who had giant faith and depended on the Lord, and the Lord provided for him greatly. Do that. Do that with everything that you have. Pursue that, and yet at the same time know that Paul, as well as Christ, they liberate us. Not only do they liberate us, but they encourage us to another way of thinking. And what I mean by that is, whenever you're wondering about Christ's commitment to you in what may seem like a crisis in your life, yeah, go to the Word of God and be reminded of the love and commitment that God has for you, and then go look at a bird. Go watch that bird draw his food from the ground for himself, and then take it to his newborn, and pay attention how awesome God is that He has such care for a bird. Pay attention that God feeds the ravens. Pay attention that God is so majestic, yet at the same time, He is aware of every sparrow that falls to the ground. Be aware of that, be taken aback at that, and know that if God's commitment to a bird is such as that, then all oh, the commitment that God must have for me. What allegiance He must have for me. Any time that you're wondering, how is this need going to be met? How is this physical need, this emotional need, this financial need that I have, how in the world is God going to meet this need? Listen, beloved, run to the Word of God as fast as you can and be reminded of God's commitment to you that, he, that you are ever before His eyes. Do that. And then go look at a flower in a field. Or look at a flower in your yard and pay attention to the fact that God, as majestic and as powerful as He is, He took the time to clothe rightly, beautifully, this flower and to place it in a field for everyone to look at for His glory and be reminded that God is more so committed to you by far than He is this flower that He so carefully decorated Himself. Anytime that you're concerned about God's care or God's control in the seeming chaos of your life, look at the sky and be aware of the stars that God, as majestic as He is, carefully placed in the sky and then be aware that He holds all things in His hands at this current moment. And if God cares so much about the control and the solidity of this universe, wow, how much more is He committed to me? See, one of the things that Charles Spurgeon did, one of the ways that he fought depression was, yeah, he ran to the Word of God. As a matter of fact, he said, I don't know what's going to relieve me from this depression other than faith. But you know what else he did? He walked outside and he opened his eyes. And this is what he said. If you let a man be naturally as indifferent as a bird, he will hardly be able to bear up year after year against such a suicidal process. He will make his study a prison and his books the warders of a jail while nature lies outside his window calling him to health 
and beckoning him to join. The ferns and the rabbits, the streams and the trouts, the fir trees and the squirrels, the primroses and the violets, the farmyard, the new-mown hay, and the fragrant hops, these are the best medicine for hypochondriacs. <laughs> the surest tonics for the declining. The best refreshments for the weary. For lack of opportunity or inclination, these great remedies, if these great remedies are neglected, the student becomes a self-immolated victim. But the freedom doesn't end there. Henry Nouwen was a professor of philosophy at Harvard University. He went to the Amitage Museum in St. Petersburg, Russia, where he was introduced to the first time to Rembrandt's painting of the prodigal son. He saw the painting, he stood before the painting for not one hour, not two hours, but for three hours. He stood and sat in front of that painting and it changed his life. He went back to Harvard University, resigned from his position, and moved to Toronto to work with the mentally disabled. What happened? What happened? You know what? I don't know what happened, but somehow God used the strokes of Rembrandt's brush to speak grace to another man. And I believe with all of my heart that God, that Paul would encourage us, go out there and find those things that are pure. Go out there and find those things that are lovely. Go out there and find those things that bear the mark of Christ and see Christ's commitment to those things and then know, wow, is He so much more committed to you. I want to talk to you very briefly about the greatest freedom and the greatest peace of all. Paul says in verse 9, What you've learned, received, and heard, and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. John Wesley was in the process of dying. On his deathbed, he's surrounded by family and friends. They're reading him scripture. They're encouraging him. Hey, John, the Bible says this. Here are the promises of God. Da-da-da-da-da. John Wesley says, you know what? Yeah, I know it. I know all that, and you're right. But this is the greatest thing of all. God is with us. I hear what you're saying. I receive the promises. Yes, you're right. But this is the greatest thing of all of it. God is with us. So we say, Paul, thank you for identifying the obstacle that may keep us or, or tempt us to, to, to go in the direction of anxiety. Thank you for that. Thank you, Paul, for identifying the effort that we need to, to put forth. Thank you for informing us that there's freedom that we can have to find faith in many different places, but the greatest thing is that God is with us. Now, I don't necessarily read verse 9 as a formula, or verse 8 and 9 as a formula. I don't necessarily read that as to say, and I could be wrong, but I don't necessarily read that as to say, you know what, if you do A well, plus B well, then the sum of doing A well and B well is then the God of peace will be with you. I don't think I believe that that's, that's a formula that we have to follow in order for the God of peace to be with us. Now, I do believe that the Christian life is a challenge. We're to run. We're to fight. We're to pray. We're to believe. 
We're to discipline ourselves. But I believe the good news of the gospel is that the God of peace is with us in the midst of our humanity, in the midst of when we blow it and when we fail. As a matter of fact, we've already been introduced to Paul's anxiety in Philippians 2.28 when he said, Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, speaking of Epaphroditus, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. 2 Corinthians 7.5, Paul said, For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest. Then he says, We were harassed at every turn, conflicts on the outside. Remember what he said was within? Fears within. In other words, man, you know what? I've followed the Lord, and there have been times that I've just been fearful. And yet, we have this great promise. As God tells Paul that he doesn't need to be fearful as he goes into Corinth. And listen what he says in Acts 18.10. He says, Paul, I am with you. No one is going to attack you. No one is going to harm you because I have many people in this city. Now, I don't think that God would say, Paul, don't be fearful, if Paul wasn't tempted to be fearful. It's the good news of the Gospel. God comes to people who are fearful. God reveals Himself to people who are messy. God shows up in the midst of our worries and our fears and our anxiety. Do you know what I need when I'm the most anxious and the most fearful? I need a person. I don't need a process. When my wife had our first daughter, Sarah, after she had the baby, she had a C-section, her vital signs are going crazy, man. They're just off the charts. Her blood pressure's going crazy. Heartbeat, heart rate's just out of this world. And so I walk into the room, and the nurse says, listen, I don't know who you are, but you must be something, somebody very special because her vital signs have just, they've just changed dramatically. My daughters have a fear of going into our basement because most of the time when they go into the basement, they'll see a spider or two. You know how little girls are. So there's this fear that they have of going into the basement. Do you know what causes that fear to subside? When dad goes down in the basement with them. It's one thing to walk in the dark alone. It's another thing to walk in the dark and somebody grab you by the hand and say, I'm walking with you. The good news of the Gospel is it's not ultimately about what we do. It's not ultimately about if I pray in a certain manner, God will hear my prayers and then He'll reveal Himself. No, ultimately when it gets down to the nitty gritty of our Christianity, it's all about a God who chose to come close to us while we were anxious. It's all about a God who chose to come to us in the midst of our fears and our troubles and our pains and our messy, messy lives. I'm going to close by ending Martin Lloyd-Jones's the end to his previous statement that I started. He says this, The trouble with most people is that they will not think. 
Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask. And I think that's interesting because we sit down and calculate in order to conform to the standard, but anxiety kind of we're sitting down and thinking about the wrong things. Instead of doing this, they sit down and ask, what is going to happen to me? What can I do? Jones says, that is the absence of thought. It is surrender. It is defeat. Our Lord is encouraging us to think and to think in a Christian manner. That is the very essence of faith. Faith can be defined like this. It is a man insisting upon thinking when everything seems determined to bludgeon and knock him down in an intellectual sense. In other words, that doesn't make sense. Ah, that can't be right. No, that wouldn't work this way. The trouble with the person of little faith is that instead of controlling his own thought, his thought is being controlled by something else. That is the essence of worry. There's only one thing that can separate us from the love of God. Only one thing. And you know what that is? There's only one thing that can separate us from the love of God, the presence of God, and that is our sins. But the good news is, God has already dealt with our sins through the person of Jesus Christ. So there's nothing that would separate us from the person and the love of God, even in the midst of our worries, even in the midst of our fears, even in the midst of our anxieties. We have the promise, God, You are with us, the God of peace. Yeah, I've prayed. i fasted. What happens when that doesn't work? What happens when I pray and I'm still anxious or I pray and I still don't have an answer? The God of peace is with us. That's, that's what's next. That's what happens. I ask you if you would to bow your heads with me. You know, guys, we can come watch a bird. We can look at a flower. We can look into the night sky. But I want to tell you where all of the Christ, all of our Christian thoughts begin. Their starting point. Starting point always has to be for us the cross. You understand? We can, we can stand outside and look up into the sky tonight. And if we're considering God's control and care in holding the universe together, we have to couple that with the cross because the cross reveals that His commitment to us is greater than His commitment to the birds of the air or the flowers in the ground or the stars in the sky. The cross takes everything else that we look at and it makes it it makes his value for us and the value that he places on us real value. And so so God this morning we we think about the cross. It's the center of all that we think on. 
And thank You for giving us lessons in life. Things to to think about that we can draw faith from. Lord, I pray that we would be good and faithful and given to think about the manner in which You have loved us, the faithfulness that You have toward us, the companionship that You've given us, the kindness and the mercy that You continue to show us. And God, I pray that we would open our eyes and just see those lessons all around us. Help us, Lord. Pray that Your Word would be the centerpiece for all that we think on. Let us draw purity and loveliness and truth and justice from that. Take it into our world. And God, just be continually amazed at this great love in which, by which You love us. Thank You for that, Father. And may we think rightly this day, all the days of our lives, for Your glory. In Jesus' name.